Without this doctrine, we, we are keeping Jesus always at arm's length from the Father, such that when Philip is asking Jesus, can you show us the Father? Philip actually is right, and Jesus is the one who doesn't get it. If, if we abandon this doctrine, then we, we can't really understand Jesus' words. You have seen me, you have seen the Father. It's the Father working. These are the works of the Father that I'm doing. And, and without understanding just the, not, not just the intimacy that exists between Jesus and the Father, but the unity, the, the same, them being the same being, the consubstantiality between them, the gospel is no longer the good news. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. The doctrine of the Trinity, well, this is a doctrine that is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. Sadly, though, uh, there are aspects of our Trinitarian faith that we just don't talk about anymore. And in light of the modern period and the advent of modern theology, sometimes even the Trinitarian conversations that take place are, well, not quite satisfying or even less than orthodox. I can't help but think, for example, of the way that many modern theologians have either revised or sometimes even abandoned a doctrine that's so central to, well, orthodox, biblical Christian, Christian Trinitarianism. What doctrine is that? It's the doctrine of inseparable operations. Inseparable operations. Well, much could be said about what that means, and we're really going to spend today's podcast talking about it, but at the very heart of it, it means that, well, no matter what external work uh, we may be referring to, we cannot compromise the undivided, simple, and indivisible Trinity. All of the external works of our triune God are undivided. Believe it or not, uh, this belief that was so foundational, so essential to, say, the patristics and their defense of the doctrine of the Trinity, well, this belief has been brought into question in the modern period. Some have even revised it or created a new understanding of it that is quite minimalistic. And yet, there's been a revival of interest in inseparable operations, so much so that theologians, uh, even pastors in the church, have started to ask the question, well, what is inseparable operations? How have we misunderstood it? And how can we retrieve it so that we understand the Trinity in the right way, in a way that's faithful to Scripture and also helps us contemplate this one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I have asked Adonis Vidu, professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, to come on the Creative Podcast and to talk to us about this crucial doctrine of the Trinitarian faith. You may know Adonis from some of his other writings. He's the author of Atonement, Law, and Justice, The Cross in Historical and Cultural Contexts. He's also the author of a book called Theology After Neopragmatism, 
and he's also written a book called Post-Liberal Theological Method, A Critical Study. Adonis, thank you for joining us on the Credo Podcast. So good to be here, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me on. I am so excited to have this conversation. Uh, You and I have uh, talked uh, before, of course, about the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, reading each other's books, for example. Uh, Your most recent book uh, is called The Same God Who Works All Things, Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology, uh, with Eerdmans Publishing. And I have worked my way through this book and, and then come back to it and picked it up again, uh, rereading certain mm-hmm. chapters. I have found it so helpful. I've even used it with uh, some of my students. And I think one of the reasons that uh, this book that you've written is so uh, profound is because, well, the doctrine itself, strangely enough, I mean, this is so <laughs> so uh, strange to say this in the 21st century, but the doctrine itself hasn't been written on uh, believe it or not, hasn't been written on uh, for a very, very long time, even though, of course, uh, this belief in inseparable operations was just fundamental to uh, the defense of the Trinity, say, in the fourth century, all the way through the medieval and even the the, the Protestant period of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we could start there and and just mm-hmm. for our listeners, maybe they've they've heard of this uh, language and separable operations. Uh, can you define inseparable operations for us and and explain to us what in the world has happened uh, in the modern era that has thrown this belief into question? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Matthew, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's uh, it's a doctrine that not. Um, uh, too many people have written about. Um, and I think the reason for that may be that until recently, until modern theology, it was a doctrine or a belief too obvious, um, uh, too natural to, uh, to have to write about until it becomes a problem. Like, like with many, many heresies, we, when people start questioning important assumptions of the faith, uh, then the church needs to get its act together and start clarifying uh, what it believes in. Um, I could not believe it when I uh, first stumbled upon this doctrine in a very in a more serious way about uh, uh, six seven years ago, um, and I, I I couldn't find a single monograph written about it. Um, and one would think that every aspect of the doctrine of the Trinity is, has been covered already. <laughs> so I was a little surprised not to find any book-length tr- treatment of this. Um, so the doctrine, uh, in very very shortly, uh, I think you've actually explained it well. Uh, you've defined it well. It says that God is one, uh, one indivisible essence, uh, and therefore um, God has one will, one intellect, one power one operation in the world. Uh, We do not have a a team of three gods uh, who each do their own roles, uh, but rather we have one God who acts indivisibly. So the doctrine actually states um, that everything that any person of the Trinity is um, believed to have done or confessed by scripture to have done, to have acted, the other two members of the Trinity, the other two persons are also equally involved in that same operation. Mm. Very shortly defined or briefly defined. 
Now, some of our listeners may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound all that different from what I may be reading, say, in John's gospel. Think of John 5, for example, when we read uh, Jesus saying something like, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And of course, anyone who knows John 5 uh, will recognize that as Jesus goes on to explain what that means, uh, he is, well, he's offending uh, in, in the worst way the religious leaders because they under- mm. seem to understand that he's not, he, he doesn't seem to be merely saying, well, he's on the same page with the Father or. He's merely, uh, you know, the, the father's given him a work and he's doing it and the father's, you know, in agreement or it, he seems to be actually saying what the father does, I do. And because mm. I'm, I'm actually one with the, with the father, this is uh, yes. an outstanding statement. So, I mean, when we look at scripture, is this is this belief in inseparable operations? As some might say, well, you know, that's just uh, speculation or uh, that's foreign to Scripture. But you seem to think, no, actually, uh, whether it's John 5 or really across the entire New Testament, we, we, do we see this inseparable operation mm-hmm. shine through at various points? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, this is exactly the scriptural insight that led to the doctrine of the divinity of Christ and divinity of the Holy Spirit, and therefore it led to the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Some people might think that it's, as you say, a speculation, uh, a metaphysical deduction from divine unity and divine simplicity. Um, It it can definitely work that way as well. It can be deduced and inferred from from those uh, perfections. but historically speaking, it didn't work like that. Historically speaking, it, it was exactly the recognition that in Christ, Yahweh was acting uh, that led to our high Christology. Mm. Um, so when the New Testament writers were talking about the person of Christ, they basically ascribed to him precisely those kinds of covenantal activities that were expected of, of what Yahweh, such as forgiveness of sins, interpretation of the law, the return of Yahweh to be with his people, uh, but also fundamentally, and I think this is one of the probably more uh, the weightier evidences in the New Testament for the divinity of Christ, the, namely the ascription to Christ of the very act of creation itself. Mm. Uh, so it, it wouldn't make sense, it doesn't make sense to think about, about Christ as being another God alongside of Yahweh. Uh, because if that were true, Yahweh would not be creator. It would only be Christ that is the creator, and Yahweh would be the sort of Gnostic God behind the curtain, as it were. So as I as I look through the New Testament and as I think about this doctrine of inseparable operation, this is this is really intensely biblical and revelational and and yeah. and not primarily metaphysical. Now, when we talk about inseparable operations, uh, we we may need to be specific because in the modern era, sometimes theologians have said, well, yes, I will affirm inseparable operations, but what they mean by it is very inconsistent with what the doctrine has meant in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And so just to give maybe one or two examples of this, 
uh, sometimes they will understand uh, inseparable operations as a cooperation between the persons or even a cooperation between three different wills. Or mm. perhaps they look at the works of creation or salvation and they, they will think of inseparable operations as uh, a division of labor, right? Uh, mm -hmm. in, in which mm -hmm. you can actually have the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, having really uh, exclusive um, uh, works or attributes that the other persons have nothing to do with. Um, and, and so there's a, a division of labor so that the work is complete, but, but not, act, not actually in the strongest sense a unity. How, how does your definition of inseparable operations guard from those type of uh, mistakes? So, Matthew, what I try to do is I, I distinguish between soft and hard inseparability. And I, I, I define soft inseparability as exactly the, the, these um, misunderstandings uh, of divine um, action, such as cooperation uh, or division of labor, as you put it. Um, and I, the argument there would be that with such an understanding, um, the divinity of Christ would never have been affirmed. Mm. Um, and it would only have gotten us to the point where we would identify Jesus with some kind of demiurge, some, some kind of supernatural power, celestial power, perhaps, uh, but not with the God of the Old Testament. Um, and that's exactly the only God that one can be identified with in order to be to count as divine, because there aren't multiple divinities in the, in the Jewish and the Jewish and, and in the Jewish ontology. So. Um, so, so Christ had to have been identified with only one being, and that is Old Testament God. Um, so, uh, in fact, I don't even like to talk about roles, the roles of the Father and the roles of the Son or the Spirit, because I think it leads to the same kind of, um, the same, the same sort of, uh, uh, uh misperception. So how do I guard against, against it? The way in which I define it is, is that. Each um, is that the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, each act the same uh, action tokens as opposed to action types. By which I mean, this is a type-token distinction, uh, which comes, which is a more philosophical distinction, and um, but I think it does help distinguish between a specific action and a particular type of action. Like for example, we might all be driving driving cars, so we're all sharing in the action of driving a car, right? But we're each driving our individual cars, so we each have our individual uh, token acts of driving, if you will. And I'm saying no, that's that's not that's too loose for the uh, for the for divine action, because in that case we don't have one God; we still have three beings, each doing similar mm -hmm. kinds of things. And perhaps perhaps compatible types of things, but not ultimately the same thing. Right. When we describe, in the way you just put it, there is so helpful. Uh, do we have just three separate beings doing something similar, or do we actually, or even something compatible, or do we actually have one being, one 
one essence in, in our Trinitarian language? Mm-hmm. Um, or have, have we compromised that? I, I too really resonate with what you say, with, with what you just said, because for so long in evangelicalism, the language of roles uh, has been used. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe innocently enough, it was kind of absorbed into evangelical vocabulary, it just became very customary. Um, but the more I've thought about it, uh, I've realized, first of all, this language of roles seems to have so much baggage. <laughs> uh, and mm-hmm. it's just, uh, even if someone means more or less what would be orthodox, uh, it, it is so vulnerable to misconception uh, in which mm-hmm. we start to think of the persons as, well, perhaps even having separate activities that then we, some would even go so far to say, well, those activities even define and distinguish the persons. Now I want to touch on this Mm -hmm. for a minute because Mm -hmm. in, in the modern era, there has been a number of theologians who have gone this route uh, in which they have, they have looked at the, activities or the works or any number of, of uh, things revealed in, in creation and salvation. And they've said, well, what we are witnessing in the economy of salvation, these things must actually constitute the Trinity as Trinity. They, they must actually mm-hmm. uh, distinguish the persons as persons. So, I mean, this has become very prevalent. And you warn about Mm -hmm. this, though, in your book, in which you argue against this, and you say, well, actually, that would seem to compromise uh, those personal properties that are true, regardless of whether God ever creates the world or saves the Mm -hmm. world, that sort of thing. these eternal relations of origin, if we can call them that. And you mm-hmm. weren't against trying to somehow uh, look to any number of things in the economy of salvation as, as that which somehow makes the Trinity Trinity. Uh, how, how do we avoid that type of modern tendency? Uh, how, how do we try, how, how do we define the Trinity in a way that in, preserves its unity and simplicity uh, without then sort of conflating uh, who God is in and of himself with then these mm. actions that we are witnessing in salvation history? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, that's a great question. I'm not, sure if, I'm not sure it's exactly a question that's possible to answer comprehensively. <laughs> um, I, I think what we can do at most is to articulate some some grammatical rules for how we think about God in himself and God for us and for how we think about how God acts in the world. Um, And one of the things that I've tried to do in the book is to say, look, I don't presume to comprehend um, inseparable operations. I do not know what it means for God to act indivisibly. All I'll try to do is to articulate some rules which uh, help uh, help us talk about and witness to this action faithfully. Um, some rules, some grammatical rules, is what I call them. 
Um, and one of those rules is this absolute priority of the creator in regards to creation, uh, the absolute aseity of God and how God cannot be defined by creation and how God does not need creation and creation does not enter into the constitution of the divine being and the divine identity. So everything that God does, right, everything that, that God does in creation and this divine action includes a certain created effects. These created effects do not affect and determine who God is. Um, I believe you're, you're accustomed to this, this, um, this terminology of a mixed relation between God and creation. And in Christology, we're kind of used to saying that there's a mixed relation between, between the, two, the, the human natures, I mean, the human and divine nature in Jesus Christ, which means that the divine nature affects the human nature, but not the other way around. Uh, and I think that's that's absolutely essential to uh, to uh, to preserve to preserve that that kind of rule. And it has all kinds of implications for how we think about divine missions, how we think about divine action, and also how we think about the relation between the kinds of actions we attribute to the Father and the kinds of actions we attribute to the Son. Because very often we start saying that that something something is changed in the Father because of what the son does in his human nature. So the father, for example, is turned from wrath to mercy. The son accomplishes in his, in his human nature. And for me, that means that we have, we have taken something which is created, namely something which Christ does in his human nature, something which the son does in his, in his human nature, and we allow that to shape God and, and the very identity and character and actions of God the father in turning him from wrath to mercy. Um, it's just one of those applications where if we're not careful about this distinction and, and the priority of divine transcendence, uh, then we, we will tend to turn God, uh, God into basically another item in the world, which changes with the world and is affected by the, kind, by the same things that we are affected by in the world. Sorry if I was a little bit rambling here, Matthew, but perhaps you can pick it up and go. Uh, and, and disentangle some of this. <laughs> no, that's that's actually quite helpful because uh, this really gets us at the heart of inseparable operations, doesn't it? I mean, when we when we look at uh, the incarnation, to j to just give one example right. here, uh, I mean, we could certainly you even mentioned it earlier. We can certainly talk about creation and the inseparable operation that 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 we see at play there, but. But even in, in salvation and something as specific as the incarnation, we have to be really careful at this point. Uh, take the cross, for example, uh, just as you were talking about a minute ago, uh, we can speak, we're, you know, have reasons. So when we look at a book like Romans, I mean, Paul can talk about divine judgment, for example. He can even uh, use strong language like the wrath of God. And he certainly, uh, we think of Romans chapter 3, can start speaking of Christ in terms of a propitiation. Mm -hmm. However, at the same time, uh, we have to be really careful if we're going to preserve inseparable operations. We don't want to think, for example, that, well, uh, the Father, he's, he's the angry one in the Trinity. Uh, the Son, he's, mm -hmm. the, he's the loving one. Uh, don't, right. don't mix those up. Uh, we wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Uh, in other words, we start to, to, to take even attributes of God and 
seclude them to yeah yeah mm-hmm. to, to attribute them only to one person and not to the other person uh, mm-hmm. sometimes out of good motives to try to understand say something as essential as the cross and it's maybe it's mm-hmm. uh, it's sat- the cross's satisfaction for example but at the same mm-hmm. time if we're not careful there we can forget well hold on a minute uh, are we saying that the father has nothing to do with with love. Uh, I, I mean, it's almost too basic to say, but uh, John John three sixteen uh, is isn't this why the incarnation and the cross culminate to begin with? Uh, it's because of the father's the father's love. How, so I guess that raises raises another question here. When we think about the Trinity, uh, certainly we are. We want to make sure that whether we're talking about creation or something as specific as the incarnation, we are understanding this single act of the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, to, to bring this about. At the same time, though, uh, the great tradition has also used a word like appropriation to then mm-hmm. also draw our attention to whether it's attributes or whether it's uh, you use the language of created effects. Uh, that's also very helpful mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. to draw our attention to. Okay, what does it mean then when we say the Holy Spirit is our sanctifier uh, or the one who mm-hmm. is perfecting? Or what? Why do we use this language of redemption accomplished by the Son? So, so talk to us about this for mm-hmm. a minute. Because some of our listeners may mm-hmm. may be thinking, okay, I think I think I understand inseparable operations, but but how then do I make sense of uh, scripture uh, drawing my attention to something specific? Uh, maybe in one verse it's in relation to the Father, or another verse it's the Spirit. How do we make sense of that? Yeah, this is great, and 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 I have to admit that the um, probably the 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 danger or the risk for any account which stresses the oneness of God and the unity of God, as my account does, is going to run the risk of modalism, is going to run the risk of confusing the person. So this is obviously an objection that I, that I, need, to, that I need to think about and, and need to address. And you're right to say that there's, there's always a flip to the coin here. You know, on the one hand, the tradition, and I'm thinking here particularly the Western tradition, because in the West, the West is dealing a lot and discussing the inseparable operations. Uh, the East, not so much, because the East has a different conceptuality of, of uncreated energies of God, which are also inseparable, but it doesn't quite make so much of them for a number of reasons. Um, but in the West, there's always this uh, two sides of this coin. On the one hand, as you say, the single act of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on the other hand, the doctrine of appropriation. And the doctrine of appropriation is trying to to um, to recognize the distinctions between the persons of the Trinity within the singularity of their common action of their of their of their single action, um, and uh, the doctrine of appropriation um, is, 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 however, not a way of individuating. Uh, divine action. In other words, it's not a, an, another way of appropriating certain acts, actions to just some of the persons, but rather is a way of saying that within the single action of God, 
in certain actions, there's a sense in which we can recognize some of the persons or one of the persons more than others. For example, in the, in the giving of the spiritual gifts, there's a way in which in that particular action, we can, we can recognize the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit himself in this tradition in the West is gift. So there's an affinity between what that action is and the personal property of the of one of the divine persons or in the action of illumination perhaps we might we might recognize also the work of the holy spirit uh in in and, and certain actions attributes uh i mean certain uh yeah in certain actions we can recognize the persons um i, I kind of use this this metaphor of uh of wine tasting for this and i know we're both baptists so we got to be careful about <laughs> the analogies we're using here <laughs> but in 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 tasting, in tasting wine, and I'm not a connoisseur here, but in tasting wine, you have all these expert connoisseurs and tasters that are, are able to recognize various notes, various notes in the same, in the same, um, uh, in the same taste as it were, in the same uh, glass of wine, and to and to and to establish these distinctions between them. But that is only because they were already familiar with what a grape tastes or what a vanilla tastes or whatever, right? And in the glass, you sort of recognize that. And I think that's what appropriation does. Uh, it's a way of recognizing the one person in the unity of the common action. Mm-hmm. But there's one more thing here, if I, if I may add here. Um, and that is, I think there's also another flip side, a third flip side, if, I, if you can imagine that which is that we also have the category of the divine missions and the divine missions. um, The missions are, are not indivisible. The missions are not um, merely appropriated. The missions are proper. Um, And what I mean by that uh, is that in a mission, you have specific divine persons giving themselves just as the person that they are to particular created realities. So for example, in the mission of the son, it is only the son who's becoming incarnate, not the father and not the Holy Spirit. In the indwelling of the the spirit, it is the Holy Spirit that is giving himself specifically as the Holy Spirit to be united with us and baptizing us into the body of Christ. So this is the other thing that must not be lost from sight. Uh, that the distinction between the person is not to be looked for only within the actions, that is only within the created effects that the Trinity produces. But the distinction between the persons can be established and is first of all established in the, vi- in, in the visible and the invisible mission. Mm-hmm. It is because the Son of God took on a human nature and united himself with that human nature that we can tell the distinction between Father and Son. And it's because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that we can tell the distinction between the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father. So I really think that it's, that, that it's in the missions that, it, that the distinctions are primarily established and not in the operation. But we, but we first get to know the persons from the missions, and then we recognize them in the operations. Mm. Just like the, the wine taster, right? He first knows what a grape tastes because he eats grapes. And then when he gets to that glass of wine, he's able to recognize that that scent or that taste, that note of grape in that common thing. So so I don't know if that makes sense to you. I'm really curious what you think about this, Matthew. No, I think I think what you've just said is uh, so uh, informative, right? Because we're trying to uh, be faithful to Revelation, 
so that mm-hmm. I, I think how you said it, you put it so well, right? Uh, as we are, as the Holy Spirit is really illuminating uh, what is what we are witnessing here in 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 Scripture. Uh, say, for mm-hmm. example, uh, Christ, uh, the way that the Gospels begin by presenting Christ to us. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. that mission is very much meant to uh, not just leave us there, uh, but but to mm-hmm. draw our attention to well, well, who is this son? Uh, mm-hmm. If this is if this is the son who's been been sent from the father, uh, who who is this son mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. eternally? Uh, could this be the mm-hmm. son who's f- from the father, begotten from the father? Bef- uh, before all ages, as as the Nicene Creed says. Uh, so, I mean, it, it really is a beautiful tapestry, isn't it? Because uh, you you begin to notice that well, as we are brought into contact with the gospel itself, uh, it it actually uh, lifts our gaze upward to to recognize oh, there's even so much more. Uh, the, who we're we're drawn to to understand who these persons are. Uh, and what their relations are uh, from all eternity. But like you said, at the same time, how you put it is so helpful. Uh, when we begin to look at uh, what, what you called, you know, those created effects, uh, of, of course, you know, like you mentioned with the Spirit, we, we begin to see there, oh, this is, uh, this is the, the perfecting power of, of the Holy Spirit in, in our life, and, and that is perf- that's, that's mm-hmm. very natural. I mean, Paul speaks this way mm-hmm. uh, among, you know, mm-hmm. among other authors as well, uh, and mm-hmm. so it becomes quite fitting to, to use the language of appropriation to start you know, describing, uh, say, the Holy Spirit in this way. But yet, and, and this is what I love so much about uh, so many of the patristics, or even some of the medieval theologians like Thomas Aquinas, they're very careful at that point to always say, uh, before they, they put the period at the end of the sentence, but never to the exclusion, <laughs> never to the exclusion mm-hmm. of, of the other two persons. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if mm-hmm. they're emphasizing these appropriations uh, as, as mm-hmm. they are kind of describing uh, what is taking place, these created effects. But at the same time, they always qualify. <laughs> uh, don't forget about inseparable, inseparable operations at the same time. Do you think, Adonis, is it, is it helpful to then also add uh, a clarification at this point to say that, well, even when we are describing appropriations, for example, um, and maybe you can give us an example of one or two, but even as we are describing these, we, we're not supposed to confuse these or assume that these are just the same things as uh, the, the persons and their processions. Does that make sense? Um, maybe, maybe I would need a little more clarification here. Um, you're distinguishing between... Right. You're distinguishing between the created effect, which is appropriated to one of the persons. That's right. right. And, the, and, and that which truly distinguishes the persons from, from each other, which are the, prof- the processions. That's right. That's right. And so okay. sometimes the tendency yeah. is, to, is to look at, say, a created effect mm-hmm. 
and think, mm-hmm. well, whatever appropriation is is in view, mm-hmm. uh, that must actually be, uh, goodness, that that must actually be what what constitutes the Trinity, the person, yeah, the mm-hmm. person itself. Yeah. Uh, I think we see yeah. something mm-hmm. of of this type of move in the modern period uh, when we we begin to look at uh, the way the Trinity starts to be historicized uh, Mm -hmm. so that Mm -hmm. it's, you know, especially in the aftermath of Rahner's rule where uh, all of a sudden um, we we don't speak so much of God in himself. We're we're only speaking in terms Mm -hmm. of the economic. How how do we Mm -hmm. think of appropriations then in a way that, uh, doesn't, or, or even think, for example, of the recent uh, EFS debates, where we might look mm-hmm. at at something that's occurring in the economy, uh, maybe Christ mm-hmm. uh, obeying the law or or Christ submitting himself uh, to this mm-hmm. this mission, and we we just assume, mm-hmm. oh, that 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 just must be what makes him son. Apart from the world, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that I think Thomas Aquinas, um, whenever he's talking about appropriations, he, he he recognizes that appropriations do not convey to us um, exact knowledge. That so, for example, when Paul is saying he's talking about Christ as being the the power of God and the wisdom of God, he is not saying, okay, those are the uh, perfections or attributes that belong to the Son, uh, which would be absurd. It would be absurd because then the Father would not have power and wisdom. Right? Uh, similarly, when we call the Spirit holy, does that mean that the Son and the Father is not holy? Right? It's a way of appropriating one attribute. Or when we call him the Spirit also, as if the Father and the Son themselves are not Spirit. So appropriation is 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 a is an attempt to move beyond the limits of rigorous knowledge, the limits of exact knowledge. That's why I like this metaphor of recognizing, of, of, of um, catching a whiff of the persons in the unity, in the unity of their operations. Uh, and I think you're right. You know, it, it just, um, it seems that, um, it seems that what modern theology often does, including in the in, in the EF, EFS debates among evangelicals, is that there's a rush to projection. There's a rush to project from the language that Scripture applies to Jesus Christ, for example, the language of obedience, uh, and to project that all too quickly um, in the uh, imminent Trinity into the relations between Father and Son, uh, forgetting that that language involves created effects. Mm. Um, and in this case, the, the, his human nature. So the reason, the reason, the reason the son is obedient is because he has a human nature and, and it's, it's through in and through that human nature that he, that he is obedient. Now, um, I think that that particular obedience does reveal something about his, eternal being, his eternal personhood, namely a kind of receptivity, a sort of fromness, as Sanders calls it, Fred Sanders calls it, in that he receives his being from the Father. Um, and 
in that sense, uh, the, the language of obedience is not entirely arbitrary. Uh, it does indicate something, but it doesn't indicate something in a direct projection. Mm. And I think that's that's the mistake that people are making, that theologians are making, in forgetting about divine transcendence and simply taking the circle for the sphere and confusing the circle with the sphere. And I, you know, this Flatland book by Edwin Abbott. Yes, eighteen something. It's a beautiful book. It's a great. It's a great uh, illustration when you have a a sphere passing through two dimensional reality, and of course the the form of the sphere in flatland and two-dimensional reality is a circle. And we can just jump from the circle of Christ's obedience and simply project that all the way into the sphere of the imminent relation and assume there's obedience within God. And I think that's completely wrong. It just, um, it's a, um, it's a failure of nerve, I think, uh, Mm. and forgetfulness about divine transcendence. Uh, But nevertheless, it does indicate something. It just does not indicate it on a one-to-one. There's no, it's not univocal in that sense. Um, So I think, you know, you you said earlier, um, these guys are trying to do justice to what they see in the scripture. And that's absolutely right. And and they're, and they're scratching where, where it itches. Um, And I think they're right to, they're right to think about these issues and to, and to call our attention to say, Hey, what about these things? Um, but I think we must hold our nerve and and always make the um, the appropriate qualification that God is transcendent, and these categories are basically imminent categories. Yeah, you have a great sentence, uh, very much on that same note. Uh, if I can just uh, read it here, this is this is from your book where you say the doctrine of appropriations does not supply a set of criteria criteria for further distinguishing the persons from each other. Instead, it stipulates a number of grammatical and semantic rules that pertain to proper predication of substantial attributes to the persons. That is, that is so helpful. And you go on from there to, to look at Augustine and, and even um, a, a more recent theologian like John Webster. And you really make a, a fantastic point because you you go on to to basically say, well, be careful that we don't make these eternal relations somehow uh, dependent on on economic actions. Uh, that that could be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. So it, it is mm-hmm. a a very difficult uh, and, and dangerous tightrope <laughs> to walk to make sure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are understanding. Okay, who is God in and of Himself, and then. And then, how do we understand these created effects and in, in the economy? And and but at the same time, if if we don't uh, balance ourselves, uh, we can run into so many of these dangers. Uh, you know, we mm. unfortunately we have to to bring our conclusion, our uh, our conversation to a conclusion here. But I want to give you Adonis uh, the last word uh, because you've you've touched on so many important issues. Uh, tell us more, you know, in terms of the big picture here, uh, moving forward, uh, as we think about what it means for uh, the Trinity, uh, what, what it means to talk of the Trinity in terms of this inseparable operation, what is ultimately uh, lost? What is at stake if we uh, fumble or, or even go so far as to uh, reject 
uh, this doctrine? Hmm. Well, honestly, I, I don't think we can make sense of Scripture without it. Um, without this doctrine, we we are keeping Jesus always at arm's length from the Father, um, such that when Philip is asking Jesus, can you show us the Father? Philip, Philip actually, um, Philip actually is right, and Jesus is the one who doesn't get it. If, if we abandon this doctrine, that we we can't really understand Jesus's words. You have seen me. You have seen the Father. It's the Father working in me. These are the works of the Father that I'm doing. Um, and and without understanding just the not not just the intimacy that exists between Jesus and the Father, but the unity, the the same them being the same being, the consubstantiality between them, the gospel is no longer the good news. Um, then we would only have we would have the Father somewhere still in the background. If only the Redeemer comes to us, if somehow only Jesus or the Son is able to get his hands dirty with humans, only he can tolerate the presence of sin. Uh, but the Father is somewhere somewhere behind the curtain, holding in reserve. Mm. Um, then we don't have good news in the gospel. Then, then Yahweh has not returned to to Israel. Uh, then we still we we still have to wait, and we only got second best. The same thing about the Holy Spirit, right? If in the Spirit, the Father is not present and and the Son is not present, um, then again, we only have second best. Um, And then we really um, will not understand Jesus' words. I will be with you forever to his disciples. Um, And how is this good news that he ascends to the Father? How is it good news that he's sending us the comforter? Right? We We will not be able to grasp just in what the good news actually consists. But once we understand that the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same being and they act together and inseparably, um, then we will have to keep the distinctions for sure and not lose them and not confound the person. But at the same time, we will understand the true heart of the gospel. Mm. We've been talking to Adonis Vidu, professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He is the author of many books, but his most recent book is called The Same God Who Works All Things, Inseparable Operations in Trinitarian Theology. To our listeners, I can't recommend this book enough. Uh, I even note the way that Adonis just uh, concluded there. Uh, Notice how really applicable all of this is. Yes, are we talking about the deep things of God? Absolutely. Will we have to get into some of the 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 deep waters of of technicality to make sure we get this right, of course. But notice here, uh, the stakes are high. And even how we understand Christ or the Holy Spirit in our lives or the gospel itself, well, all of this presupposes a right and biblical and healthy understanding of inseparable operations. Uh, One that doesn't settle for a minimalist understanding, but one that is quite robust, understanding that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, well, they actually are one in essence. Uh, And therefore, we have every right to then think very scripturally about what it means for them to work as one, uh, performing one single action to ensure, well, ensure so much from creation to salvation and the great redemption uh, that we get to enjoy. Thank you for joining us on the Credo Podcast. We look forward to other conversations with some of the most important theologians and theological matters today. Now you can fill up on theology each day. 
by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcast to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.